Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. When I decided to write about large-scale urban regeneration, everyone told me I had to look at King's Cross. It seemed important to study what was successful and what can be learned from this new 67-acre campus in the centre of London. I asked anthropologist Natasha Kapoor to make a study of King's Cross, which will be published in the first edition of The Developer and informs a short documentary film. In the following interview, I asked Robert Evans, partner at Argent, what he makes of these findings and what he's learned halfway through this 20-year regeneration project. Uh, I'm Robert Evans. I'm a partner at Argent, and I'm also the chief executive of the King's Cross project. Well, I mean, there isn't, it isn't very often, actually, that any developer gets the opportunity to, you know, help fashion a 67-acre piece of a world city like London. So it isn't something which comes around very often. So I, um, I suspect every example is reasonably unique. Um, but of course, it, the greater states have been very fashionable to talk about in the last few years, and projects like King's Cross and other big developments have been looked at in the context of those in those estates. I think what's interesting is just to think about time. I mean, we started planning this in 2001. We started developing it on site in 2007. We're now 11 years on. There's probably another five years left to go. Some of the other places that we've talked about, which people sort of say, oh, they're, you know, perhaps they're, they're, they're different, many of those were actually laid out by one one developer or one estate owner. But of course, what's happened is that they've had several hundred years to mature um, and for different things to layer up and for different things to, to happen. I just think you know, part of this is about that, that time element. Um, King's Cross will inevitably look and feel different and more mature in another 10 or 15 years, just as it's still growing today. We're only actually just over half built, actually, in terms of floor space. We're, we're more built than that in terms of public realm. In terms of actual buildings, you know, offices and homes and everything, we're actually just over half, and Cold Drops uh, has only just opened. And so we're still actually a work in progress at King's Cross, whereas some other places we're compared to, um, in terms of that civic quality, if you like, um, are obviously much, much more established. That said, you know, I'm hugely proud of what, what we have here and the fact that um, you know, I think King's Cross, in my mind, has added you know, a new test to my own little book of tests of whether a place can be, be regarded as successful. And one of those, t that new test is, what's it like at the weekend? And if you come to King's Cross at the weekend, it's buzzing. You know, people like to come here, spend time here. The restaurants are busy, there's chatter, there's a variety of people, not necessarily all of life, but there's a wide variety of people in Granary Square and the other public spaces. People enjoying all kinds of different activities across, across the estate. And um, people having fun and, and spending spending time here. So I think the fact that the weekends, the place is really busy and alive is, is a great sign that actually that we're doing something right. What do you say to people who say it's too clean, too safe? Thank you. Um, because I remember what King's Cross was like. You know, I remember walking up York Way in 2001 and, uh, and being offered various things um, and not always feeling very safe and, and uh, being shown where prostitutes took their clients and being shown where people hid their drugs. And of course, King's Cross was also popular for other things. They had quite a big you know, rave and nightclub culture and people, some people enjoyed that. Um, and when I was younger, I remember visiting for 
various places that lots of people ever came to too, and, and, they, were, and they were fun. But for many people, King's Cross was a no-go area. Um, and you certainly wouldn't have come here at the weekends with your family. So, um, oh, I've completely forgotten your question, so you might have to ask it again. Sorry, what was that? What do you say to people who say it's too clean and too safe? Yeah, I'd say, um, I'd say thank you for recognising it's too clean and too safe, and come with me in my TARDIS uh, to the King's Cross of 2001, when it was, it was horrible, uh, really, in many respects. Um, and, you know, we've needed to do a hell of a lot to change the place. Um, and I think for the better. Um, there is always that tension about, well, if you make it cleaner and safer than some surrounding areas, does that mean you create an edge? And, um, and yes, you do in some respects, but then, you know, how does then one address that? I, I think one should try and raise the bar up for everywhere rather than dumbing down to the lowest common denominator. And so, you know, I'm proud of the fact that King's Cross is safe and clean. I don't think it's too safe and, or too clean. I'm not sure that really even applies. Um, uh, I think it's well managed. I think we have an appropriate, you know, regime here. We try and be a very world-class operation, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And uh, you know, we try to be not stuffy, not corporate, and not boring. And I hope most of the time that we get that right. One of the things that was noticed in the study about the King's Cross Master Plan was that the wayfinding around the site was very focused on the shopping amenity, but failed to mention key services, such as the children's library and the library and the council facilities. It does mention the swimming pool, but it's listed simply as St. Pancras Leisure, and there's no sign on the building's exterior to indicate the wealth of free stuff inside. I asked Robert if this was an oversight and why it was that these facilities, which are so central to building community with people who can't afford the shopping at King's Cross, were so hard to find. Well, we spend a huge amount of time and, and money actually on, on wayfinding and, and signage and, um, and in some respects I think, you know, fair enough and you know, we, we should always look at that and we do. Um, but equally, you know, you can keep doing it and people, you know, I mean, we, we, there are so many pieces of information, for example, if you come out of the underground station at King's Cross, just to the south at the end of the boulevard and you arrive, perhaps for the first time for many years into the new King's Cross, people stop. You can see them, they, they, they come to the top of the steps and they stop and they look for something familiar and they find it quite hard to find something familiar. Um, and then there, are, there is lots of information in front of you about where to go. There are maps, there are drawings, there are legible London, boards, there are finger post signs, there is the app, there is, uh, you know, digital information. We've worked very hard with, with, with Google, for example, to get up-to-date mapping because the place is constantly changing. And that's very important these days. We took a lot of work with cab drivers to make sure they know the names of all our spaces and places so that when people ask for them, they can know where to take them. But those people still come to the top of the steps and they stop and then they go and ask someone because they would rather go and ask one of our team you know where Granary Square is, or how do I find X or Y, than actually take in. In a way, maybe there's too much information, or maybe we haven't got the information quite right, or maybe we all just prefer to go and ask someone. Um, so we'll constantly look at this, and we'll constantly think about how we can do it better, and I think the way we all use smartphones and different information is always changing. But the reality is that we do a lot. But I think there's just an insatiable demand for information, and I think people, different people want information in different ways, and many of us just go and prefer to ask a human being. Uh, and one of the things we've done, actually, is try and work with the, the team so that there's always someone close to that arrival point who can go and help someone um, if they do stop and then immediately search for someone to go and ask because people do tend to prefer to do that. Um, we do try and advertise the different facilities. I can't answer why Camden 
um, do or don't signpost their building in different ways, but I think it's fairly clear if you approach the building or you enter the building that there is a swimming pool and, and library um, in there. And of course they replace facilities that were in a different building. I don't think, I think the signage in the new building is actually better than it was in the old building. So, um, yeah, of course we can always look at signage and, and, and wayfinding and it takes time for people to get to know a place, and but over time they will. I think the same can be said of any bit of the city, you know, is every facility and every service signposted at every street corner? No, I mean sometimes it's a question of getting to know a place and feeling comfortable um, to navigate it and explore it. One finding from the study was that the site from Copenhagen Street was not as welcoming as any other entry point. The road here looks strangely like a private drive, and the eight-story high block of flats along York Way seems like a wall between the pubs and community shops across the road. London kebab owner Eunice Aslan expressed his feelings of isolation when the flats blocked his sunlight, and he feels his shop looks dirty now in comparison to the shiny estate across the road. I asked Robert about this side of the development and whether it creates an edge condition. We worked very hard on the master plan to actually integrate the street network with that eastern side along York Way into, into what is Islington. You're right, the boundary is actually down the middle of York Way um, between Camden and Islington. And actually, naturally, the site does integrate easier to the east into Islington with that street network than it does to the, to the west and Camden because you, you haven't got the railway, the, ch the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, high-speed one kind of curving through. Um, but the fact that there's an ownership change probably, you know, does make a difference, yeah. I mean, well, clearly we've been able to, to design our own development and to take account of the new uh, network rail station and the way that's been designed over time and all the entrances and the paving and the street furniture. We've, we've had control over many of those aspects down in the southern gateway and design it all from new. And, um, we don't obviously have control over the bits of land that we, we don't control. Uh, and we're always very happy to work with anybody that wants to sit down with us and say, hey, let's think about that entrance and let's, let's change it. And the reality, I suspect, is that public bodies like Islington Council, like any council right now, have got huge demands on their resources. They're all, um, they're all um, stretched. Public funding settlements are incredibly tight. And I suspect that there isn't spare public funds going around to, um, to, to, uh, to address some of those areas that are actually um, owned by the council and managed by the council. That said, there was quite a lot of money spent and allocated in our section 106 for improvements off-site. Um, some of that money has been um, paid but not spent yet. Um, both boroughs, I think, have got works to do, which, which they will do using money that, we, that we're paying. Um, so again, it's not finished yet. There are some things that will come along um, on the edges of the site, which are to do with implementing parts of the Section 106 that haven't happened yet. And hopefully they'll make a difference. I mean, it, what you try and do always is, is work with partners. If you're in a city, you, 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 nobody's really an island, so we work with, uh, we're always uh, reaching out to people. Um, so we work very closely with Camden, we you know, work with a number of police forces, including the British Transport Police and the Met Police. Um, we all always work, try and work closely with, with everyone um, uh, that uh, is part of that edge, if you like. Probably, I mean, inevitably, some relationships are easier than others, and um, you know, we obviously have an interest in managing you know, our side of that line as best we can, and we do spill over it in many ways. You know, we, we, we try and have regard to things happening just over the edge, but you know, ultimately, um, you know, York Way isn't our, ours to do with, and, and we aren't able to 
to, um, to, to do things with, with other, people's, uh, other people's land and other people's um, uh, highways and pavements and so on. That, that we, know we can best affect change by working with partners on those things, which you know, we're very keen to do. Do you think diversity and inclusion is important in building this community? And, and what are your thoughts on that? I think it's hugely important. Um, and part of the reason why the fountains weren't running was that they were broken. Uh, it wasn't because it was winter, I think it was because we were doing maintenance. I mean, they've actually become so popular that, that uh, we've had struggles keeping them going at times. Um, and they've, um, they've struggled a bit with all the filtration and other requirements. Um, the square has been so busy in the summer that actually they, that those fountains require a huge amount of maintenance. And, and winter is the, sometimes the best time to do that because obviously you want to run them in the summer. Um, so to an extent, they've been a victim of their own, their own success there. Um, but the broader question is, of course, it's terribly important. And you know, we do talk about that a lot. And um, we always try and bring stretch into our offer. So whether that's the retail offer and the price points of different food offers, uh, that includes you know, permanent restaurants, but also the street food, and also the other offers that are around and about in terms of the, um, uh, the housing offer, including, um, you know, of expensive housing and less expensive housing and housing working with partners such as registered providers and charities such as Dolphin Living. Um, in terms of the whole offer, we always talk about that stretch in the offer. We want to try and reach um, to all ends of the spectrum, ideally, um, and we want people of all um, you know, incomes, types, colours and creeds and so on to feel welcome um, at King's Cross. Part of that is just about having a tone of being welcoming to everyone. Um, I think, as I said earlier, I do think there's a wide variety of people that come to King's Cross. I think the University of the Arts helped set a tone from that. It's an incredibly diverse, um, inclusive place. Uh, that, from day one, created a certain atmosphere around King's Cross. Um, I don't pretend necessarily that we have everyone, um, but I, we try and make everyone feel welcome. And I do think there is real diversity in the people that spend time here, live here, and, uh, and work here. Um, you are welcome to come to King's Cross and wander around, and there are various things to see and do that don't involve you spending, spending money. But are there expensive shops, and are there expensive restaurants, and less expensive restaurants too? Yes, there are, absolutely. Um, but I don't necessarily think the test of a good place is, does every single person who might you know, live in that city um, go to that particular location. I'm not sure that's the right way of looking at it, but uh, we certainly do talk a lot about having a broad offer and being welcoming to all, um, to as many people as possible, and trying to bear in that in mind in, a, in the way that we program space and organise our activities and manage the place. Um, and um, you know, I think and, and we think that is part of sustainable long-term value as well. If we're going to own this place and derive the broad economic and other value that we talked about earlier for a long time, actually we need to be sustainable in that respect and we need everyone to feel that they're welcome here and I'm um, uh, part of it. Well there's, there's, I think there's, that word is used in so many different connotations, there's clearly uh, an economic value, um, part of that is, is cash flow, whether that's you know, rent or other income, then there's a sort of capital value which is a a, a projection that people make based on a notional sale, which no one's doing. So um, that's always a, there's a sort of you know monthly and quarterly valuation process, which is basically linking this place, frankly, to sentiment in the wider market and what bond yields are doing and all sorts of other financial instruments. But then, of course, there's social value. Um, 
environmental value. I mean, people, that word is used in so many different, in different contexts. But I think when we come to a, a, a piece of a, of a city like King's Cross, very often people are using that and the, the regeneration language to talk about all of those things wrapped together and, and the balance between them. So in terms of you know, what's the place done for the city and how can one look at you know, the social, economic and physical value that, that a place has brought. And we've explored that ourselves. I mean, we asked Regenerist to produce a report, I think it was last year, might have been the year before, um, and they produced a big piece of work on the social and economic value of King's Cross, which, which uh, we published their report on that. So we've explored that, those, concepts, those concepts too, which is looking at the broader impact of change, uh, you know, beyond bricks and mortar and direct spend, but on sort of you know, wider public good. Well, I think, I think the value is, is, is many-fold. There's clearly, a, um, uh, in one sense, the value of King's Cross is that it's, it's uh, delivered uh, a step change in the safety and cleanliness of a place. It's made it more accessible and more friendly, more welcoming to a wide variety of people. It's provided new social facilities, uh, new public realm. It's, created, it's allowed a new economic activity to take place. Uh, and um, helped bring jobs, employment and activity to this part of Camden. It's effectively allowed central London to breathe. It's become part of that growth of the world, world city economy that London, that's important to London and London's future. Um, but these places like Kingsford's on the edge of the central area are effectively always about trying to accommodate those world city functions, those, those functions which are how London grows economically, but at the same time reconciling that with the more neighbourhood aspects of, of housing and, and the civic and the, the social um, facilities and so on. So for example, the fact that we opened you know, a, a two-form entry primary school and co-located it with um, uh, a specialist school for deaf children, Frank Barnes, you know, has brought something hugely positive and dynamic to King's Cross. Um, in fact, I, I came from a governing body meeting just now before coming here. Um, so we're, very, we're absolutely involved in the running of the school. We're the academy sponsor. And that, that school brings something unique to King's Cross. And, and, and equally, um, that school has brought something to all the families and, uh, that, that use that school and benefit from, uh, from what it offers. So um, it's kind of like trying to ask the question, you know, what do cities bring? Or what's the value of cities? You know, if, if, you're, if you're a chunk of the city, you're part of what the city, of what the city brings. The study discusses the town square from an anthropological point of view. These public squares are performance spaces and can be uncomfortable to enter. As places to see and be seen, they are important places to have in the city as stages for protest and participation, but they are also a pressured environment. You ask yourself, who is in the square? People like me? I asked Robert about what he thought this research had to teach us about the public square. You know, it's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I, like you, don't feel I've ever felt that going to a city or a place that somehow I, I need a level of reassurance to merely enter. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting idea that there might be some people who, who do. I guess that then leads to some interesting questions around, you know, how can you do that? And, and, and um, you know, whose job is that to do and how do you do it? Um, and, and I think that, you know, it, it may well be. I'm no, I'm no expert, but I suspect these things are relatively subtle and nuanced. Um, we spend a lot of time, for example, when we were designing the uniforms, not, not personally, I hasten to add, of the, of the estate team. You know, what kind of message does that uniform send? You know, does it look security or does it look customer help, you know, customer and helping? 
Um, and broadly, we try and look more customer and friendly and wayfinding and helpful during the day. But there's a slightly more security look at night time, for example. That's something that we, that we talk a lot about. Um, and people do notice the difference. Um, and, and people who work here notice the difference and, and, and like the fact, for example, that there is that you know, nuanced change in the way the uniforms work in the evening and at night time. Um, so I'm sure that's also true of other people, that small signals can make a difference. Yeah, and maybe we're not always best to judge. You know, we, we work here, we've been involved in it you know, a long time. I've been involved for 18 years. Sometimes you need a third party to kind of go, hey, if you did X, somebody else might find this place more welcoming. So that, that would be interesting. But your point about time is also right. I mean, we haven't, we haven't finished yet. Um, the school is still growing, and the school is definitely one way of, if you like, pricking that bubble, because we have all kinds of people from both the Camden and Islington side of King's Cross who come to the school and, and, and are part of that school community. And Frank Barnes, uh, again, has a wide, a wide reach. Um, we have you know, things like the Skip Garden, which has grown to a series of different um, stages and which we know we hope will accommodate in a final um, version as part of our triangle site development uh, in due course. Um, we have yet to build one of our leisure facilities, which will be along York Way on the edge of the development. There'll be a sports hall uh, built there, which we hope to start construction of very shortly, alongside an office building. So, yeah, there are still, there are still aspects to the, to the project and its um, facilities that are yet to, you know, yet to be built and yet to emerge. And I'm sure they'll have a role in, if you like, reaching out and, uh, and welcoming you know, a, broader, a broader population. Um, we have lots of different ways of interacting with people. And um, if people suggest that there are ways in which we could do things slightly differently to help make the place feel more accessible and welcoming, even though we think it is, then we'll always try and do it. I mean, that's, uh, that's good for us, right? That's good for all the people that, uh, that live and work here and for the restaurants and the shops and all the people that want to be welcoming and, and open for business and, uh, and part of the community. Um, so we've talked a bit about um, all the other things that might come along to help layer up the place and make it, provide some of the things that aren't quite, perhaps quite here yet. So uh, we do have, as we talked about earlier, some additional uh, facilities like um, another indoor sports hall coming along, which which I think will um, help that, that, uh, that community development that, you've, that you've, uh, you've, you've asked about. And we're only actually, we haven't finished building, building homes yet. We've got a thousand homes on site, but there's another seven or eight hundred to go. And as those buildings finish, we're seeing the formations of you know, residence groups and, and uh, in some cases those residents saying, actually, we'd like to organise our own services in the building and, and we'd like to do things a different way and starting to take control of their own buildings and you know, that's, uh, that's interesting to see and that will I'm sure you know, develop and grow over time. So part of this is about, about maturity um, but also yeah, other things coming along. We've, it's quite an interesting discussion about Waitrose. Some people say that's where all real life happens. Other people say oh, well, why does it have to be a Waitrose? You know, why can't it be a Lidl or a, or a co-op or something? I mean the reality was that Waitrose was the company in the supermarket business that was prepared to engage with us on that kind of offer. Most of them have a standard format and wanted, you know, so many car parking spaces and, and so on. And Waitrose were the, were the one company who were prepared to, to be braver and do something different in that case and uh, try a different format and also, you know, work with us on a whole range of other community endeavours. So their cookery school, for example, is at the heart of an awful lot of outreach which happens. And I can tell you the school in particular that I'm part of makes fantastic use of the cookery school. And we run all sorts of um, clubs using the cookery school. And we also use that as a way of reaching parents and promoting various 
initiatives around you know, home cooking and nutrition and so on. So as a, Waitrose have actually been a fantastic partner for the school uh, and are at the heart of all sorts of good things that are, that are happening here. And we've tried for many years to, to get a, a doctor's surgery on site. We tried to give away a free facility a few years ago for the NHS to, to populate. Um, sadly, they didn't have the, uh, the money to do the revenue side of that in terms of providing the doctors and the, and the, um, the facility uh, and pulled out despite us spending a lot of money trying to make it happen. And we're about to try again with a slightly smaller facility, uh, perhaps working more directly with various local GP practices but again under the banner of the Section 106, it's actually terribly hard for the development industry to engage with the NHS on this stuff. We certainly haven't found it easy here. I think also the NHS is in constant flux, constant organisational change, uh, and it's always, it seems, short of money. So those are real challenges, but um, we are trying desperately hard to get a doctor's surgery, a GP practice on site, and uh, we think that's important. I'm hopeful that we will make that happen. Um, there's also some, some everyday neighbourhood retail that is yet to come along. Exactly whether that will include um, a key cutter, I don't know. You can get a tattoo here at the moment, which I'm not sure is an everyday experience, but it, it's certainly a little bit different. Um, but no, we've talked about those things, and certainly as you look at the areas that are left to develop, most of those are around and to the north of Cubit Park, to the north of here, in those more neighbourhood-type parts of the residential community that will be King's Cross. And it's in those areas that we some of that, that neighbourhood retail, if you like, coming along and being uh, sprinkled into the mix. So I expect that we will see some of those things, some of those things that provide the everyday services and facilities that people want and need happening on the ground floor of those buildings that have been yet to be, uh, yet to be delivered here. So I think, uh, I think in short, it's coming. Would you ever consider putting those on the edge of your site? Well, some of them, some of the, yeah, some of them will, some of them will be, and some of them will be not on the edge. I mean, I, I think that's possibly a tad simplistic. So let's put it on the edge to make it more welcoming, because you still have to then draw people into the centre. Um, and I think those things can be one way of doing that. That's one way of, of prompting people to come and explore and, and, and populate the site in the same way that the school has created a real sort of civic ebb and flow in the mornings and evenings of people you know, cycling, scooting, walking to school and back. Um, and I'm actually pleased with the, the fact that the school is in the centre of the, of the project. It brings something to the centre of the project and the place. Um, so I'm, not I'm sure some of them will be on the edge, but I'm not sure that's necessarily, if you like, the right response. I think, I think you need to, to spread these things around the development, actually, and uh, encourage people to explore all of it. One last question, which is just about the alchemy of the place, what do you think? What do you think are the keys to creating a great piece of city? Well, if I if I if I knew what the key was, I suspect it would, we'd be able to. Um, uh, I think it, it's a, it's it's it is a, it is alchemy. I don't think it's a scientific process. I think part of it is just understanding the place you've got. Um, I, I'm sure that successful placemaking has to be about growing and developing strands that are already there in many cases. So I think understanding what you're working with as an existing place is really important. And I think in that respect, the fact that we started in 2001 and we knew we couldn't really get on site till 2007, come what may, because of the, the linkage with the opening of the St Pancras International, actually meant that we, we did take our time and we, I mean, we had no choice, but it was also a, a great, fun process to do 
to really understand the site over that length of time. It's not an opportunity developers often have, actually. Very often the pressure of the, the money you've paid for the land and the money you're, out, you're, you're laying out for, for planning and design means that there's always that inevitable push to get on site very, very quickly. Uh, in this case, we had years, actually, before we went on site. And I think that, in some respects, helps you really understand the place that you're, you're working in. Um, but also, in this, case, in this context, time actually is your friend. Very often developers see time as uh, not an enemy, but a sort of problem, because you need to get going, you need to get to a sort of critical mass, you need to get to a point where the place feels busy and built enough to kind of achieve certain things. But time is also an opportunity to try things. Time is an opportunity to find the right partnerships, the right local partners, to, to try things, see what works and adjust, you know, see things that work and do it again and see things that didn't quite work and conveniently forget it and don't do it again. And, and we've done all of those things here uh, in terms of programming and events and enlivenment, where we manage the place, letting decisions and, other, and, and so on. So time, time in that context can be very important. I think the planning system tends to push you into trying to get it all right on day one and kind of have a plan and then implement it. Well, the reality is places aren't like that. Places mature and grow and change and evolve. And actually, we need to allow these places to do that and to actually breathe. Uh, it's been a great joy seeing how Granary Square has changed over time since we opened it, and it will continue to change. And we just have to be aware of that uh, and be responsive and, and, and nimble. I think the other thing about the alchemy of place is that for places to have a sense of place, they have to have something about them. They have to have an angle, if you like. They have to have something. Well, they mustn't be as bland. And I think, by definition, as soon as they have a sense of place, you're probably making it more attractive to one group of people than you are to another group of people. If it was equally unattractive to all groups of people, it would be probably pretty terrible. So I think if you believe in this, this notion of a sense of place, and that places should have a strong sense of place, I think you have to accept the the natural consequence of that, which is that however you've designed it and however you manage it, you can be inclusive and diverse and welcoming, and you should be, but inevitably that sense of place will align with some groups of people more than it will with others. I think that's just inevitable. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.